Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. We have more objectives than one. Making money is like breathing. We need it. It's a measure of efficiency. It's a measure of evidence that you have a good business model. You need reinvest capital to make the business grow and evolve and innovate. You need to take care of your people and motivate them. You need to be a good steward of the environment and your planetary resources. You need to leave the world as good or better than you found it. And you need to give a great return to your investors, otherwise they will abandon you. Life isn't as easy as that you can just have one master. Uh, we serve more and more objectives, and I think capitalism is heading in that direction, and that's the work of my life. I'm actually quite uh, optimistic about where that's heading. This is Matt Lederhausen, founder and CEO of B Corps, a company that invests in businesses with a strong purpose and a mission to make the world a better place. And Matt's belief to build truly great organization, the purpose has to be bigger than the product because we're all responsible for elevating the future. And over the years, Matt's been involved with some amazing brands like McDonald's, Chipotle, Predamanche, Roti, and many others. And it was great to have Matt's on the show to hear about his incredible career at McDonald's, where he played a key role to build more progressive businesses, and then afterwards setting up impact investment companies. We also dive into the power of purpose, his investment philosophy, and why we are on a discourse as humanity, and what business's role is in solving the big challenges of the world, and how to view growth as a leader, the future of food and hospitality, and how we become better leaders, and much more. Before you tune in, please sign up for our weekly newsletter, packed with more Maverick insights, strategies, and tools. Find the link in the show notes, or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. Now, be ready to get your perception on how to run a business challenged. Enjoy. Today, there's a, there's a big chance that, as I said to my guests, that I'm going to geek out because I've really been looking forward to this conversation because we'll be talking about purpose, uh, we're going to be talking about lack of trust, probably, and we're going to be talking about this insane entrepreneurial journey where you can go on sometimes and be uh, successful and make change, and then you end out actually investing in other people's businesses as well. And then we, we're going to talk about a bit, we're going to try to, to figure out, as my guest said, how, how, why are we here where we are and what can we maybe do about it to, to make the world a better place with business? So with that said, welcome to the show, Matt. It's an absolutely pleasure to have you. Thank you. So for people out there 
uh, might never have heard of you, Matt, and and what you do now. Maybe it's good to just give them like the the story of your journey, the big milestone. I know there's a lot on that journey, but it really builds up to what you're involved today with the B course and 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 your investments into different businesses. Sure. So I'm 58 years old. Uh, I currently uh, sit in Chicago. I was born in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, in 1963, uh, into a very entrepreneurial home. Uh, my dad started many, many businesses, and eventually he became the second uh, McDonald's uh, franchisee of uh, the McDonald's system in Europe. So he opened the second restaurant in Stockholm in 1973. So that's kind of how I grew up. I grew up uh, peeling French fries and flipping burgers and in a very entrepreneurial way. Um, then I w- did my military service. I went to business school in Stockholm. Uh, I moved to London, worked for Boston Consulting Group. And then I joined my uh, father's uh, family business back in 1990. Sweden was entering a very hard recession. It was quite troubling times at the time. And uh, eventually I took over the business um, and built uh, what I would refer to, we can go into that in detail, a much more progressive version of McDonald's. Uh, Over 10 years, built almost 200 restaurants and um, uh, got the attention of the people in Chicago because uh, the same reasons, the underlying currents of society that was pointing towards sustainability and and, uh, healthier foods and more modern restaurants and better technology had started becoming a problem for McDonald's globally. So they uh, fired the CEO and the new CEO had been to Sweden a couple of times being intrigued by what we were doing. And he asked me to come join him as head of global strategy. Uh, So I moved with my family in 1999 and spent four years as head of global strategy, global food, global real estate. I had a big job. Then I got more interested in the entrepreneurial journey. I invested on behalf of McDonald's in a bunch of restaurants, concepts primarily, but also some other concepts. Uh, the most noteworthy was uh, Chipotle and, and also Pret-a-Manger. So I built uh, and ran those businesses on behalf of McDonald's uh, as primarily as you know, chairman and lead investor. And eventually I sold all of those businesses um, for McDonald's and started my own investment platform because and also a venture capital firm called Qball, uh, and those businesses are dedicated to investing in businesses that have a purpose bigger than their product, because that's what I really believe in, and we can go into that in more detail. But that's what I'm doing, and have been doing for the last 15 years, and super excited about it. And um, what have you learned then in in your later part of your journey as you started doing investment? Because that's the different, you know, you're coming from from corporate McDonald's, where I would say with my own background, there's almost an answer to most things operationally. Uh, it's about how you actually can be ahead of the game all the time, and then going into the more entrepreneurial world because it's an extreme shift. I I faced that myself when I left McDonald's, and suddenly you're in this entrepreneurial world uh, where there's not always a resources and answers to everything? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, I've learned a lot is is the short answer. I don't consider myself primarily as an investor, even though that's kind of what I do. I allocate capital into businesses that I really like, and then I help them, you know, succeed, hopefully. I consider myself much more of a, as a, as a business builder than, than as an investor. And, and in some people's minds, there might be not a big difference between the two and other people's minds, there's a big difference between the two depends on who you ask. But I try to be a 
supporter, uh, business builder of the management teams I invest in rather than an investor. So like I don't just write a check and then I call once in a while. I, I get very involved in, in the building of businesses. So, so that's one part of your, the answer to your question. The other part is that I think while I, I think it's fair to say that I can play both roles, I can play the small entrepreneurial journey role, and I, can, I obviously succeeded in, in playing the big corporate role, and I, I like both, I respect both. But I think the older I get, I guess the more you return to home, the more you become like your parents, the more like, you know, my dad is like a super entrepreneurial guy. And I, and I, my love affair is, is probably deepestly or most deeply rooted in the entrepreneur. So I say to people all the time, I love capitalists. I have some questions about capitalism, uh, but I, I have no questions about capitalists, entrepreneurs, people that devote their life to solving problems. Um, I, I just love the entrepreneurial journey. So I, I, that's what I like the most. Um, it's not easier necessarily, sometimes harder, but I just, I just like people that are in the arena uh, and are in the game and playing the game versus on the sidelines having opinions about the game. I think the world is very troubled by a lot of people with opinions that actually don't play the game. Um, and I say to people all the time when they have opinions, like, have you, you know, it's easy to have opinions from, you know, far away from the field, go in and play the game and then have opinions. Yeah, and and that, that's super interesting because, uh, it's always, uh, the investor, you talk about you invest in companies still through B course, you would do a, what you will call impact investment. You were very early on that stage. How, when you go in and work with your, you know, entrepreneurs or people you invest in management teams, Many of these teams, when I talk with them, really fear the investor conversation because they feel we are not working together. What have your learnings been, you know, going in, investing and, you know, have you seen these things? And what is your advice to the entrepreneur out there to, to handle this situation? Because you all want the same. You want success. Yeah, uh, that's true. Um, you know, I think the most important Thing relative to the founding team and the investor relationship is to have the same values. That's always the most important thing. It's the most important thing when you hire people. You know, people are spiritual creatures that come together based on a shared set of beliefs. If you don't have a shared set of beliefs, it won't work. Um, and, you know, many investors, um, not all, Certainly, there's many, many exceptions, but many investors traditionally invested in companies because they believe that three or five years from now, they could sell that investment at a big profit. And they obviously believed in the business model and they believed in the team to take them to that journey. But quite honestly, purpose and what's the purpose of the business and the intentions of the business and whether they had positive or negative effects on society or whether the products they sold were really good for people, in most part of modern history has taken a backseat. Those were not questions that most investors asked. And quite frankly, most founding teams didn't ask them. Capitalism became, over the last 50 years, I would call it amoral, not immoral, amoral, meaning it didn't take a stance on those things. It took a stance on our job is to make money within the laws of the country I'm operating. 
That was kind of capitalism. And to some extent, still is capitalism. And what I have dedicated my life to, and still am involved in, is that I think that's wrong. I think business is far too an important institution in society to only care by itself or care for itself. It has to have broader intentions. Um, and luckily and fortunately and really optimistically, I'm excited about it. I think that is now changing. It has changed certainly. You know, you and I are with Scandinavians. It certainly has changed in the in the Scandinavian, I would say broadly speaking, European marketplace. It is pretty rapidly changing in the American marketplace. You know, we have ways to go in some other geographies in the world for, for natural and evolutionary reasons, but clearly it's changing. And, you know, the Business Roundtable, which is one of the most powerful organizations in business, which is basically all the global big CEOs, they changed the statement of the purpose of the corporation two years ago, which I thought would, I actually didn't even expect myself to be alive when that happened. But it happened. It happened uh, to a, a position of stakeholder primacy versus shareholder primacy, meaning we have more objectives than one. Making money is like breathing. We need it. It's a measure of efficiency. It's a measure of evidence that you have a good business model. You need reinvest capital to make the business grow and evolve and innovate. Uh, you need to take care of your people and motivate them. You need to be a good steward of the environment and your planetary resources. You need to leave the world that's good or better than you found it. And you need to give a great return to your investors, otherwise they will abandon you. Life isn't as easy as that, that you can just have one master. Uh, we serve more and more objectives. And I think capitalism is heading in that direction, and that's the work of my life. And I'm, 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 I'm actually quite uh, optimistic about where that's heading. And that's interesting. We'll come back in a moment to talk a bit about business as the solution for some of our world's big challenges, both for, for the planet and, and for society and for humanity. So you have a weekly newsletter, and that was actually where I started to follow you before I reached out to you. Uh, it inspired me a lot, and uh, I learned a lot, and makes me reflect a lot. And recently you were you put out, uh, you've been to the TED Talks, and you send out this uh, all the TED Talks you should listen to, and I was the one with Elon Musk. And I think, you know, just to, to let people know, I, uh, I've never really tuned into Elon Musk because it's a different different world than I, but there's really one any business owner should listen into because I agree with you, say there, he sees things in a, in a different light and it might help us as, as we run businesses. But that comes back to me again when you, there's a red thread through your newsletter where you talk about we are on some kind of discourse as well as humanity. Even though you say you're optimistic and, you know, business can be part of the solution, you, you also say there's a lot of, you know, tension here in the world and it's getting getting worse. Can you talk a bit about that and what it means for you and so we can get some clarity because we all know it, Brexit. You know, uh, what else has there been like war in Ukraine? There's so much, and we can pandemic. There's so much discourse uh, in general, just between individual, but also between nations right now. It's a big question. It's a big question, Michael. Let me try to do my best, and please interrupt me if I if I go off the tangent here. But I think at at a meta level, at the highest level, I think humanity finds itself at a place of disequilibrium. Uh, we're at at a state of not equilibrium. There's no no harmony between all our different uh, positions. And I and I think um, 
you know, you can refer to this as a shift in paradigms, a shift in story. Uh, the best way to think about this, I think, is what Yuval Harari, the great historian that wrote, you know, he's written great books like Sapiens and others. Um, he said a few years ago uh, when he was asked, you know, why are, you know, there's, there's evidence that people are more depressed and more lonely and more suicides and more crime and more, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, we, we have fewer babies and, you know, there's all, all sorts of evidence that humanity is in, in, a, in a rough spot right now. And of course, the pandemic and the war have added just to that. This was before that. But he said, you know, on the one hand, there has never been a better day to be born as a human being ever in the history of the world. And, you know, the problem is it doesn't feel like that. And that's kind of where we are. It's like if you look at it factually in terms of materialistically, how many people have food for the day, how, how, you know, housing, living conditions, income levels, global poverty, diseases. You can look at any metric, and it is undeniably so that, you know, you would want to be born today versus at any other time in history. But it doesn't feel that way. So why is that? Well, I think it is because we have changed the paradigm which we grew up with. And, and, and we have basically, we are entering and have entered, I would argue, a completely different world. And all of us that are alive today have no relationship with that sense and, and what it feels like to enter a new world. Last time it happened was when we entered the industrial age, right? And we weren't alive then. Our parents weren't alive then. Our grandparents weren't alive then. So we have no connective tissue to what it is to transition an entire um, era. But it, it, it's not the first time it happens in history. It's happened every couple of hundred years, right? The Enlightenment, the Renaissance, the, the, we, we've, we've moved to different eras before. And I would argue and have argued for a long time that in the last 30 years or so, we are going through this very painful shift from one way of thinking, one way of working, one way of being, to an entirely different type of world. And our institutions, if you think about it, this is how I think about it. Our institutions, whether it's our political institution, our business institution, our educational institution, our healthcare institution, all those institutions were obviously designed and structured to optimize and maximize the value for everybody based on the previous era. And all those institutions need to be reimagined and repurposed and rewired and re-engineered. And that's very painful because it is like repaving the expressway while you're driving it. It's like rewiring the electricals in your house while it's on. You know, it's, it's hard to do because we can't just jump to the next area, era. We have to live with what we have and build what we want. And that's, that's the entrepreneurial journey too, right? That's just, but it's in, 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 a, in a macro. And that's what we're going through, and that's what's very hard, and that's what's very confusing. And, and I have dedicated my life to what capitalism needs to look like and be like, and we, we can talk more about that later. Uh, and, but I have lately, and it was really the pandemic that triggered it for me, come to the conclusion that capitalism as an institution, if you think about that as an institution, relative to all other institutions, are by far in the best shape relative to the future. And I know that might be, 
maybe not shocking to your audience, but it certainly is shocking to some other audiences because there's a lot of people that are critical of capitalism. But if you think about the CEOs of companies today, if you think about founders and entrepreneurs of companies, I think they display a higher degree of self-awareness, self-criticism, willingness to change, adaptability, awareness of climate crises and, and social crises, than leaders in the other institutions. If I listen to leaders in the education institution or healthcare institution, I think they're more blind and less aware, broadly speaking. There are obviously very many exceptions to all of this, but, but broadly speaking. So what I started thinking about was the one thing that makes me the most nervous and worried and anxious about the world is the, collap- is the collapse of our public discourse, at least here in America, but I think it's not much better in Europe, meaning people have lost the ability to kindly, respectfully, and in a civil manner, have a discussion about different points of view without hating each other, without wanting to kill each other, and without shooting down each other. And this has been amplified by the whole social media machinery. And I'm, I'm quite concerned about it. And I see it in my companies. I see it with my friends. I see people don't talk to each other anymore just because they have different political views. And it's very unhealthy. And I also don't think we are in much that, that much disagreement, actually. I think we, agree, we disagree with Putin. That's very clear. But I don't know if like Swedes and Danes and Americans, if we're that much in disagreement. I don't think, I think we, we typically, most of us in the Western world at least, subscribe to very similar basic human values. You know, with some nuance for sure. And there's obviously disagreements on, you know, how to equitably distribute the wealth we've created. That's one of them. Uh, there's disagreements on how aggressively we should pursue climate, you know, resurrection, if you will, or, or climate change. There's some debates we can have and should have, but we should have them civilly. And, and so I started writing a newsletter to my community and try to build a community where people engage and actually are willing to listen and read articles and ideas that are slightly uncomfortable to them, because I think that's healthy. So in every newsletter, I, I bring some topic up. I typically have a couple of links. I try to, to, to people leaning left, I try to give them some you know, right-leaning stuff. And people leaning right, I try to give them some progressive stuff. And all in the spirit of love, promote understanding. It's called in pursuit of elevation, trying to make more sense of the world. Because I think the last thing I say on this question, Michael, is that I subscribe to Vaclav Havel's theory of optimism or hope, which is, that hope is not a guarantee that things will turn out well. Not, very few humans are that naive. We don't want a guarantee. Nobody wants a guarantee. I mean, it would be nice, but we know that doesn't exist. Life always throws you curveballs and challenges. But what we do want, and hope to him and to me, is the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. We want to understand it. And then we can deal with you know, issues. And, and right now, I think many people struggle with understanding what is going on. And um, so I'm trying to be as helpful as I can. Don't know if I'm succeeding. If this audience uh, thinks this makes sense, please 
subscribe to the newsletter. It's open. It's free. You don't have to pay anything. It comes every Sunday. And I love to engage with you and, and send me ideas and thoughts because I think we need a better human conversation. Yeah, and, and just to say, this, uh, because people probably sit and think, what can I do, like really practical? And you you made, you made gave a couple of examples. I think I want to, and you have a, a read one of your blogs at a point. I think it was called, just me remind myself now, the deficit of trust, the thing, or trust issues. And you actually talk about the, the skill to listen and I really took that on board last year and really been trying to come back to the thing Stephen R. Corey talks about, Seven Habits of Highly highly Effective People, talks about listening actually in these conversations and being in these conversations and not on your your phone or your laptops in meeting and actually giving that other person, even though you disagree with their view, I think you talk about as well. And do you see that? You said, I see that in some of the companies I'm involved in. Sometimes that management team actually just don't give each other time and space to, to get their points across. I see it. I see it with myself, Michael. I see I see a lack sometimes of tolerance of you know, we get we are trigger happy. I mean, you look at you look at the sort of I don't know how, how prevalent this is in Europe, but it's certainly very prevalent here, which is this whole what what is refers to as referred to as safetyism this whole idea that somebody can say something and people get canceled you know people want to like eradicate entire lives and careers because somebody said something that made somebody uncomfortable i think that just words don't kill i mean some words are very hurtful and very inappropriate but they do not we shouldn't be that upset and i try not to be that upset if somebody says something really hurtful to me. I, I try not to. They probably didn't mean it. They were probably in a bad spot. You know, I just think we need to dial down our emotions a little bit about conversation and just try to listen to what people are saying. When, when somebody is very emotional, they're obviously very upset for some reason. And, and our job as a fellow human is to understand why they are that upset and try to listen for why they are so upset. And then help them together figure out what we can do about it. Yeah, and what I've heard, like, you know, talking about, you know, people not listening to each other, especially what I started observing, because when you suddenly reflect, you start to observe what you do yourself, what other people do. It's like they think they know what the, the answer is, or they have understood the person, and then they interrupt to disagree. And I think that's actually the root to many bad things for a company. And it made me on a journey really trying to say, okay, how do you actually start becoming more compassionate, but also actually listening to understand instead of answering? Um, and I think that will be the message out there. We'll put this article in the, in, in, in the show notes because it's a, it's a deep conversation. We, we, we can go on, on on that in itself. Um, but again, you talk about a lot in the work you do as well. And this was just an example. The business is part of the solution. You also said like capitalism is in principle part of the solution. But how can business do that? You know, of course, they can work towards the, the UN, 17 UN goals, try to solve some of these big challenges. But what is the role of business then if the traditional institutions are failing like governments and so on? Well, I mean, the reason why I picked business as a force for good or why I believe it, it can have such impact is that I've seen it. 
Uh, and when I was a young man, you know, if you asked me, the way I thought about this 25, 30 years ago was, if I wanted to be helpful, if I wanted to solve a problem, if you said to me today or 30 years ago, Mats, let's go solve problem X, okay? Whatever that is, it doesn't almost matter what it is. There's some exceptions, but you know, most problems, you know, poverty, illiteracy in children, uh, you know, daycare, building roads, you know, you know, to give me the problem that we're going to solve. And you said to me, you can go and work politically to solve those problems, or you can hire a bunch of business people to solve this problem. I wouldn't even flinch. I wouldn't even like think which group I would rather work with. I just don't, I haven't seen the potency of politics in a long time. I think it is the worst of our institutions. It's ineffective, it's bureaucratic, it's, a, it's, it's of course needed, but we need to make politics better. It certainly is better in Scandinavia than it is here, that's for sure. Uh, so there's lessons to be learned. But I believe in business. I believe in business people. I think they're at least corrupt of our institutions. They at least say what they want and they go do it. And, and this whole idea that there's a conflict between profit motive and doing good, I think is wrong. I think it's a healthy tension. Here is, here's the problem though. What I have identified as the biggest indictment of capitalism are two things, meaning the biggest problem. One is its stated goals. If you, if you set out to build a business and your only stated goal is to beat budget and make money, then, you know, I have some, there's some things to talk about. Um, uh, and and you, you mentioned Elon Musk. One of the reasons I so respect Elon Musk, not only for what he is doing, but it's the problems he's attacking. These are not small problems. He's attacking big human problems. And thank God he is, because he's attacking many of them better than anybody has ever done. Uh, so, so we are, humanity should be super grateful instead of ridiculing him, um, which too many people are spending time on. Um, and, and yes, he's the richest man on the planet right now. But A, that's just paper money. Who knows where that's going to end up. And B, he's not, he, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't consume them. He's making, using them to do even more problems. Now buying Twitter and by, he's attacking big problems. Uh, and I love that. So I think the stated intention of a, of a business should be, this is what I call purpose bigger than product. It needs to be about something we all care about. That's number one. And most business, too many businesses don't have that. More and more have that, which is great. Um, second of all, um, you know, think about McDonald's that you spend time in. Ray Kroc had a vision, which basically you can summarize as, you deserve a break today. In the 50s and 60s and 70s of America, women entered the workforce. We needed to outsource cooking. You needed an affordable platform where people can go and outsource some of their cooking needs because you didn't have time to cook 21 times a week. It was needed, which is, by the way, why it worked, because you can't build a big business on something that is not needed. You can't force people. You know, people that are critical about capitalism, they think you can just put TV ads and, and fool people. That's just cynical. You can't. People will not do things against their free will in most Western countries. Thank God. So anyway, so, 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 
So businesses that scale and businesses that are good needs to be about something, a broad human need and solve a broad human need. B, the time horizon of everything in society have shrunk, has shrunk. And that's a major problem. I, I usually call this, we live in a short-term world with long-term problems. And business time horizons. So if you set out to maximize value for shareholders in 25 years, I don't have so much problem with that goal. Because in order to create real value for your shareholders in 25 years, you have to create value for your employees, you have to create value for customers, and you have to be a good neighbor and good standing community member because otherwise, you know, you won't find office space, you won't, you know, it won't work. So over a long period of time, your stakeholders' interests align. The problem is capitalism has become very short-sighted, and so has all other institutions in society, which is a major problem, and I would argue might be our biggest problem. When I was born in 1963, I used this statistic because it's, it's revealing, uh, that the average hold time of a public equity, a public stock, was eight years. It is now three months, if that. And what I discovered when I came to America to try to help McDonald's with this transformation, I found it impossible to convince shareholders that have a three months time horizon to be interested in changing the way people eat. Because that takes longer than three months. And unless you adjust the time horizon of your aspirations and your purpose with the time horizon of your shareholders, things go bad. And it's so interesting, uh, Matt, because one of the things I've been exploring here on the show, I'd be very interested about also before the pandemic was, especially in the hospitality restaurant, this extreme focus on growth, you know, without purpose, just to grow numbers of estates, the bottom line, whatever it was. Um, and I'm, I've been reflecting, is, is that actually one of the issues that we maybe are, some of the places we are, we are not really having realistic because when you look at some of the best of the best companies, uh, one of the first books I got very lucky in a young age from a professor when I was reading strategy and leadership at uh, the business school in, uh, in Aarhus in Denmark was about it was called Good to Great by Jim Collins. So it's these companies in there that's a lot, much longer term and they have existed all the time. And if you look at the pandemic again, they didn't sail through, but they they came out better and stronger version of themselves because they went back again and looked long-term of that. Where we want to be in 10 years time, where we'll be in 15 years time, I've read about. Is that what you see as well? And can you mention some companies you would say that entrepreneurs and shareholders should go and look at and be inspired by well it's a a complicated topic first of all i love jim Uh, i love good to great i i love um that that's a great book and by the way it has a scandinavian flavor because uh the person who did most of that research with jim is norwegian and a good friend uh, morten hansen he's he's awesome he's a professor at berkeley um it's fantastic work It, it it's I mean, Jim Collins' work, if you go to his website, look at his concepts and models and framework for how to run a business, I think it is the best, maybe of all. And that's, that says a lot. So I, I'm a huge fan. I've used a lot of his concepts uh, many, many years. Um, um, on growth, you know, growth is, is generically and generally good. I think growth is good because growth is change. Growth is dynamism. I think companies to be healthy needs to grow. 
because people have aspirations. You can't create, um, you know, runway for people and growth opportunities for people if you don't grow as a company. And therefore, growth is really important. I, I really do think it's, it's hard to be a successful company if you don't grow. I, I think that's true. Now, what level of growth can and should be debated? And I think where we have gotten in trouble, I think, at least in the smaller entrepreneurial ecosystem, is that venture capital and also private equity, some it's a risk capital, if you will, have become a little bit of this, like I call it the alphabet soup. They raise cap, you know, round A, round B, round C, and everybody is about pushing it to the next round. And the way to get a higher valuation at the next round is obviously to show high growth rate. Um, and often high growth rate, not profitability, right? So you see a lot of evidence of companies that grow very fast and they lose a impressive amount of number. And those journeys rarely end up well for anybody. It, they, they rarely end up well for investors. Uh, sometimes they end up okay for investors, but they almost never end up well for the founding team, which, which I care more about, honestly. Um, so you have to have the right type of growth. You know, I have a framework that I've developed that I call Think Big, Start Small, and Scale Fast. So I think what that's about is that you need to you go back to what problems are you solving in the world? Is it a big problem? Does it have a lot of demand? Then you start really small and you nail your model. You nail it before you scale it. You nail your systems, you nail your culture, you nail your business model, and then you can, you can scale pretty fast if you have access to capital and, and you don't screw things up, obviously. But, but um, uh, you know, I think growth is important and you need to be aligned, aligned with your investors around the time frame and time horizon of your growth aspirations and, and, and also completely expect that things will go badly because almost all journeys do. I mean, for a while. And then, you know, look at the pandemic. Look, I mean, you always enter issues in any life journey. And if you don't expect that, I think you, you will be disappointed. It's very interesting you said there, you talked about this foundation you put in place from the beginning to be able to scale fast. Often we talk about distribution channels and so on. And you mentioned, and so I, I interpret it like, be very clear about your purpose and intent here in this world and find a, a version of that, that you can scale that story, if we call it that. And then culture, because a lot of businesses I see, and I don't know if you agree with this, is that they go back and try to retrofit that. And a lot of people, and I don't know if Ray Kroc, now we have this assembly thing around McDonald's, both been in that system. I actually think McDonald's was very clear about what culture they wanted to build from day one. And there's this movie called The Founder where you see he's reject the franchise uh, leadership team in the early days because they were not aligned on where they were going and how they were doing it because he had a vision for how this should, if we got that right, we could become the biggest operator in, in the US at that point. Um, and, and it's just so interesting. A lot of businesses go back and fix that. Do you see that as well as one of the issues where we end up in problems later down the journey as we scale the business? It's not about distribution channels. It's about the foundation of your business, your soul in principle. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, I often say, I said yesterday in a meeting, as late as yesterday, uh, that, you know, scaling anything is not that hard. Like, you know, building buildings, buying machines. I mean, there's, it's hard, but it's not that hard. Scaling culture is really hard. That's what's hard. 
Um, and you can't scale something that isn't well-defined because then it goes, you know, in any direction. And like, like strategy, you need to be very clear and focused. And, and you know, the, the best companies are very clear about their culture. And Amazon, Bezos was very clear about his culture. You know, the day one, uh, whatever he calls it, the first day or day one culture. Um, uh, and you mentioned McDonald's. I mean, uh, there's many companies that have a very distinct culture. And I would argue most successful companies do have a, a great culture. And, and your point about retrofitting, neither purpose or culture, that's really hard. If you don't have it right from the beginning, you know, that's why most companies die young. Most companies that even succeed die young. The average life expectancy of a company is shrinking. Like any, you know, what, what I say jokingly is the average life expectancy of companies are shrinking. The average life expectancy of people is growing. So that's hopeful. But I mean, the reason why is that they, they, they don't change. They don't stay with the times. They don't adjust and they don't pivot. And they, you know, which is, you know, why, why most companies uh, struggle. You know, I was lucky to be part of the turnaround at McDonald's, both in Sweden and uh, globally, uh, where McDonald's is actually one of the few companies that were in that were supremely successful in the 70s and 80s. Supremely successful. I mean, you can think whatever you want about McDonald's, but you can't deny the fact that they were a very, very successful company. And then they started seeing real signs of trouble in the mid 90s globally. And they bottomed out about a year after I came to America, and we had real problems. I mean, real problems. And I would say most people, sometimes including myself, doubted that we could ever turn this around. Because it, when a big, big company starts doubting itself, and people start doubting them, shareholders start abandoning you, the evidence of large companies that can come back to another growth journey, I think there are five companies last time I checked that ever did that. And McDonald's is not one of them. And I'm very proud to have been part of that um, to a small extent. Um, but, you know, McDonald's came back and, and, you know, is bigger and stronger than it's ever been. Um, so that's that's helpful, even though I'm not part of it for, since many, many years. But it, it, it's rewarding to look. And there's some others, you know, um, uh, the most, you know, I think uh, IBM is one of them. They came back. They were severely challenged for a while. Um, but if you look at the number of companies that have stalled and, and where they've lost a lot of value that have then come back, very few. I mean, you can count them on like maybe two hands. Yeah, and it comes down again to the, the, the culture factor and the ability to reignite that culture factor. You, you, you've been involved in, in food, hospitality for an early age on. Um, Follow the true pandemic you have investment into the hospitality scene so what is the hospitality's role because hospitality has just been in the knees and now we need to make the world a better place what is what is food businesses and hospitality business role in your view to play in this we all businesses have different roles to play well i'm i'm supremely biased obviously uh uh so so but but for your audience that might be good um so i am a huge fan of hospitality i'm a huge believer in the importance of our trade. And, and I would say there are three, off the top of my head, um, three reasons why it really matters. The first reason is that I think it is the entry point for work for so many people. 
and we belittle that and we don't take it we don't give enough credit to the hospitality industry for being the shaper of cultural work norms in society and so many people have their first job in a restaurant or in a hotel or cleaning or something in in and around the hospitality industry and that is incredibly important for that human being and for society uh, and i you know we all there are examples of people that do that really well and there's examples of course of people that don't do that as well but by and large it plays an important function for those people and for the labor market per such because the way the hospitality industry works is that it's not monday through friday nine to five so it offers job opportunities for students, for people that have different work needs, that is very, very helpful and helps elasticity and demand and supply adjustments. And it just plays a really, really important role uh, for, for economic and spiritual and, and, and learning reasons. People learn. You know, you can interview a lot of people. And I did that once. You know, I wanted to do a big campaign. In fact, we did a campaign in Sweden about famous people that whose first job was at McDonald's and they're not few and they all of them will say the same thing it was the best thing I ever did I learned coordination I learned I got self-confidence I learned how to communicate I learned how to routinize things I learned the power of systems I learned collaboration I learned service I learned how the importance of smiling I learned how to hustle um, you know so I, I think it it just uh, really really important the other part of the hospitality industry that I think is very often neglected, which I love, and maybe the thing I love the most, is that very few jobs in our world offers the opportunity to start at the bottom and end up at the top. You know, very few nurses become doctors. Very few airline stewardess becomes pilot. Very few teachers become professors more so maybe than the other example, but not that many. But a lot, in I would almost all CEOs of restaurant companies started at the basement level, so to speak, mopping floors or peeling potatoes. You know, when I was at McDonald's, 60% of all the officers, all the vice presidents or above in the company started as crew. That's amazing. At McDonald's, the last, you know, of, of all the CEOs in the history of McDonald's, I'd say, Almost all but two or maybe three started as crew. It's amazing. It's an opportunity. It's, an, it's a social mobility elevator. You know, you can start, if you really don't know what to do as a young person, go into a franchise restaurant chain and start at the bottom. And if you really are dedicated and disciplined, you can end up running that place. And I can't say that about just about any other industry. And, and I think it's a fantastic part of it. And the last thing I'd say um, is, particularly as it relates to restaurants, is that we have a social crisis going on. People eat alone. People don't talk well together. We talked about that before, about this whole need for a better discourse. I think food brings people together. And it's the most natural way for people to sit around a table and be human together by breaking bread, by eating, by sharing stories. It's the campfire. 
It is something the world needs more of and needs more desperately today than ever before because we are screened to death. We've, we've technologized to death. We need our humanity back and food can be the entry point and should be the entry point. And I wish families took it more seriously to really use dinner time and meal time to be together and talk about what happened today. Uh, and restaurants can play a really important role of enabling that type of, of um, uh, experience. So I, I think the hospitality industry is really, really important. That was, that was really, really great answers because also it comes down to what the core of hospitality is about. And I think lots of people have forgot that, especially in these times where people don't see hospitality as a, an opportunity for a good career anymore and, and these things are really important we get these messages out about the industry what what is your you know your, your short thought about the future because there's a lot of you know optimism is hard to find in the moment even though we came out on the other side the people is out on the other side now there's inflation and what is this new big thing around the corner that's coming what's that going to mean well you know i think the good news as with all questions, there's always good news and maybe challenging news. The good news is I don't think eating is challenged by technology completely, meaning I don't think we will live ever in a world where, you know, you you you, you fill your uh, food needs by pushing a button on a phone and, and you're done. Now, it, it certainly, that, and the bad news is, a lot of it is delivered that way, ordered that way and delivered that way. But it's still food. So meaning you're not, if you are a restaurateur, if you run a restaurant, uh, the demand won't go away. I don't think people will return to cooking their meals from scratch at home. I think that's not going to happen. Um, that's just going to be fringe. Um, so I think the demand is strong. Uh, but restaurants need to like like all periods of transition you know the pandemic was certainly an opportunity to practice some of this and 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 adjust into a new way of behavior um and and you know get your tech stack in order and get you know delivery to work better and 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 figure out packaging so that the food shows up well and hot and and, and enticing um uh but i think you know, you and I learned that at McDonald's. I think quality, service, cleanliness, and value are still what drives restaurants. It's not that complicated. You need to serve food that people love, uh, that they want more of. Uh, you need to serve them fast, reasonably fast. People are not going to wait for hours to get food. Um, and you need to, you know, have, be clean and hygienic and safe. And, and you need to serve them at, at a price that people can afford. And if you're fine dining restaurants, that may be less important. You, you can afford and people will... Will, will spend more, but if you want people to come more often, you need a lower price point. Uh, that hasn't changed. The one thing that I am passionate about that all my current restaurant investments are about is that I, we have a health challenge, and particularly in America, but, but also in Europe. We need to sell food that is good for you. And too much of our diet in the Western world is not good for you. We, we eat not enough plants, I mean, most restaurants serve 10 to 20% of their plate plant-based. And the rest is, you know, carbs predominantly and some proteins and animal proteins uh, and sugar and salt. 
and I think the diet needs to be pushed aggressively into a plant-forward type of diet. And I'm not suggesting vegan. If, if you want to be vegan, that's fine, and that's obviously more plant-focused. But I am suggesting that we need to replace a lot of the carbs and the sugars with more plant matter. So, you know, I think a plate should be 60, 70% or 100%, somewhere between them, uh, of, of vegetables, basically. And that's what we need to eat. Uh, and restaurants need to do a better job. And certainly in Scandinavia, you see a lot of more evidence of this than you do elsewhere. But, you know, I'm certainly, all my concepts are very plant-centric. Um, because I think, you know, you saw it in the pandemic, people that have, better diets that are less obese uh, fared this virus a lot better, I mean significantly better, uh, because you have a better immune system and you're healthier. And you know, our, our, our lifestyles are producing a lot of chronic diseases that we can avoid. So eating is a big part of it, and restaurants have a big responsibility to help people make better choices. It's not easy. I will be the first to tell you, I've tried in many restaurants to sell better food, People say they want better food and then they don't. But I'm stubborn. I'm, I'm, I'm working hard at it. And, and in one of the restaurants I'm building now, it's called Roti. It's a Mediterranean-based restaurant. And we're really working hard to entice people with really great flavors and taste and craveability to also end up eating more vegetables without them almost knowing. And I love you say the last thing you say that's so important is the taste bit. That's the the trigger because we are still humans, so we are driven by taste and desire and and, and the savorousness of, of food. So that's where it should be crack. As your eating plan should not be a punishment, in a way. No, it has to be great, and it can be. A couple more questions before we wrap up here, Matt. Um, over the last two years, what is like, you know, the you know, you, you share a lot of your learnings in your newsletter, but what is like the most significant learning or question you were asking yourself about the world in, in, in the moment as a leader of business? Well, I don't know if it's new. I mean, a couple of ideas come to mind. I mean, the one thing I try to remind myself every day when I get frustrated and when I look at my children or grandchildren or friends that are concerned or I feel concerned about the world, I try to remind myself that the best place to look for answers is always in the mirror. You know, I can worry myself to death about things I can't control, but it's not good and it's not smart. So I need to sort of get back into, okay, what can I do? Uh, and, and I wouldn't call that a new learning. That's an old learning. I'm also a Stephen Covey, you know, trained facilitator. So I learned that early as a young man, but it, it is a lesson that I need to remind myself of almost daily. It's so important. And the other thing I would say is that I, I, I have spent my life trying to work on a better version of capitalism. I chaired something called Business for Social Responsibility for 11 years. And, you know, I've worked on these issues for a long time. I went to Davos. I've written about them. I've spoken about them. Um, and I, I feel pretty good about where capitalism is going. As I said earlier, I, I think it's heading in the right direction. Uh, what I didn't expect is the, the collapse of our democracies and our political systems. I think they are in really bad shape and much worse shape than I, they ever have been in my lifetime. I also didn't expect us to be on the verge of possibly a nuclear war, which is, is frightening. Uh, I can't do much about the latter, but the former I'm trying to 
be a source of inspiration and I'm trying to host conversations and I'm trying to talk to people that I disagree with in a friendly way. And I try my best to be the change I want to see in the world, as Gandhi said. I think that is what, what I think uh, most of us need to do. And the last thing I'd say, and I say this to my friends all the time, a lot of people watch politics and I think they share my concerns. I don't know about you, but I think people are not very happy with where we are. Um, but again, sitting on the sidelines will not change it. And, and, you know, Jerry Garcia, the famous musician from The Grateful Dead, you know, he had a saying that I love, that I use a lot. He said, somebody's got to do something and it's just incredibly pathetic that it has to be us. And I, I would just encourage all the people that listen to this, let's figure out together what we can do about this. Because we, reasonable, regular people, can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. Don't leave it to those people we don't currently trust. That's a mistake. So let's get in the game. That was a absolutely great way to end the conversation. It's us that has the power for, for the change and make the world a better place, no matter how small it is. You can Everybody can push the swing wheel, as he calls it, in uh, good to great and get more speed on that. Thank you so much, uh, Matt, for, for joining the show and sharing your story, your insights, your views, helping us figure out a bit more about the world and how we, we take that into business and how we do more good with business. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for uh, doing all the work you're doing. Thank you so much, Matt, for this great insight into how you can use business to make the world a better place. You should now reflect on how can I ensure my business lives its purpose and make positive impact. To get further inspiration on how to make more impact as well as great business results, tune in to episode 154 with David Dressler, who is the founder of Quiet Advisory on creating a soulful workplace. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels, which all can be done via the website at hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their social at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at advice at bizsimply.com. A big thank you to Fina Charlton, who is the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview and in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the newsletter and more Maverick Insights at hospitalitymavericks.com. Don't worry, if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. I'm Michael Tingsem, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick Podcast Show. Be Maverick!